can score here. Welcome to Retro Match, the podcast that tells the story of classic football matches from years gone by. I'm your host, Chris Darwin, and today Pete Spencer and I are going to be talking about the 1988 Littlewoods Cup final between Luton Town and Arsenal. Pete, this is a game you must have been looking forward to being a Liverpool fan, obviously. <laughs> well, it was a rare one to, uh, to find it was a game at Wembley without us. Indeed, indeed. And of course, in going back to April 1988, Liverpool were just wrapping up uh, another league title. Um, S-Express were, uh, were topping the charts with the theme from S-Express. And Sandy Lyle had just become the first British winner of the, uh, of the US Masters, Pete. So do you remember that? Um, I do, I think, actually. Yes, I, I did used to sort of follow a bit of golf back, uh, back then. Um, yeah, no, that, that rings a bell. Well, look, as, a, as is the typical form here on Retro Match, we're going to give you a little bit of a background to this classic game. Then we're going to talk through the key moments of the match as, uh, as we go on, probably add in a little bit of our own personal sort of feelings towards it. In fact, definitely going to do that this week because this is a, a match that is very close to my own heart. And then we'll, uh, we'll have a little bit of a, a talk about what that meant in the future. For, for both clubs being Luton Town and, and Arsenal. So, so Pete, remind me, and again, we, we're very open about our, our ages on this podcast. How old were you at this point? Because I, if I was right, you were nine-ish for the 1977 European Cup final. So what, you, you're pushing 20 now? Yeah, 19. Um, I've got a few months still left of uh, teenage years and, and when this was on. Okay, good stuff. And uh, so we we look a little bit back at the uh, the the, the run-ins for for both these teams coming through to the final. Luton Town had beaten Oxford two 0 in the semi-final second leg, having drawn the first leg one one, and Arsenal had beaten Everton uh, over two uh, two legs one nil and three one. Everton being a very good side uh, at that point in their lives, actually, and still when they lost the defending league uh, league champions, I believe, because Liverpool hadn't wrapped up the title by that point. But uh, what do you what do you remember about the respective Luton and Arsenal teams from this time? Um, the um, well, I mean, Luton had had obviously come into the sort of first division beginning of the uh, early part of the eighties under David Pleat. He'd then gone on to um, Tottenham, so you sort of felt that okay, well, is is that a sort of a, if you like a dynasty sort of going to to change? Ray Harford took uh, took over, and you could argue this is their best. Um, their best season with uh, with with lots of um, uh, action in, in plenty of cups. Arsenal were just sort of starting to to go. I mean, it's George Graham era. They were starting to sort of move into this team that um, went toe to toe with Liverpool over the next sort of four years. Um, and interestingly enough, there were probably one or two changes that came from this game that George Graham made that. Um, produced them or well, resulted them them being such a, a strong team. He he sort of found the missing ingredients in a way that. Um, so yeah, I mean, and of course Arsenal were the um, won the league cup the year before. I uh, can't remember who they beat, and um, and they um, and in a way, you know, that was a surprise because Liverpool were, were expected to win. Rush scored, and it was the first game uh, I think that Liverpool had lost when Rush had scored. So um, that in itself was a was a bit of a, a shock, and you sort of got the feeling it kick-started Arsenal uh, under um, George Graham. Um, huge sort of changes from the previous uh, year. People like sort of O'Leary had gone, Charlie Nicholas had gone, um, and an interesting story about Steve Williams as well, which we might come on to. But um, so so he'd sort of got some some changes, a young youngish sort of. Uh, team and I think they they entered the competition uh, the, the, the final but like Tottenham we were talking about in last week's uh, game from the FA Cup the year before expecting to win um, probably turned up and thought well this you know is just a formality really but um, it, it was anything but no indeed anything but uh, exactly that I mean for, for me this is uh, this is the match of my childhood if I'm being completely honest because I'd actually about. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing, because I haven't actually checked the dates, that the, the Littlewoods Cup semi-finals must have been about five, maybe six weeks before this, this Cup final. And uh, 
I was at that point as uh, so nine, so eighty eight. I would have been nine now because yeah, I was I was eight last week when we did the nineteen eighty seven FA Cup final. So I'm so I'm nine now, and I'm driving back. It's my first season as a player as a kid. I decided to join a football team because, as I said last week, it was better than being beaten up in the playground. And I was a goalkeeper, so I was like I was going to get a game every week because I chosen goalkeeper. Never played in goal before in my life, and uh, and just made that made that decision on the spot at the first game. But I had to reach that critical point in my life. What was going to be the football team that I would support forevermore? Now, I dabbled with Manchester United. I dabbled with Liverpool. I dabbled with Everton. I'd even dabbled with Tottenham, I think, at some points between the 1987 FA Cup final and this moment in my life. Because you you do at that age, I think when you come from a place where I came from, where you didn't have a team in that town or that city or anything. You were, you, 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 just, you supported whoever was doing well. And I think you can argue that that's a, a lot more prevalent in this day and age than, it, than it's ever been in, in football history because people have a lot more freedom of choice over who they actually support so this is the critical moment Pete I'm driving home from a game of football and my dad said and my dad hates football by the way he's not a football man at all but he asked me have you decided who you support yet I went dad I'm I'm making it simple whoever's winning on television when I get home today I'm going to support for the rest of my life and I had no idea who was playing but I did know that there was a game on because there was almost always a game on at this time because uh, we're getting into like the, the silly season of cup semi-finals and I think the London TV show football TV show was on more often and, and things like that so so we know that there's a game on I get home and Luton are beating Oxford 2-0 in the Littlewoods Cup semi-final and they go on to win it and therefore that is the reason I became a Luton Town fan now at this point 1988 Pete Luton Town are a good team I thought I'd struck gold I really thought I'd struck gold we played nice football even I could see that at this point in my life we, mm. we had some really cool players we had Ricky Hill we had yeah. Brian Steen Steve Foster with his headbands I thought this this is absolutely great we I think we got we played at Wembley the week after we lost 4-1 to Reading we, we, we might touch on that in a little bit but the, Luton Town being a Luton Town fan being the only one in the school this was cool we, we, we played at Wembley more times than Manchester United that season. I think more than Liverpool that season. So I, I was I was, I was was set up for the, the rest of my life here. And then we get to the Littlewoods Cup final. So I was I was happy, Pete. <laughs> but, I bet you were. Yeah, go on. Then. I was going to say, but there is there is a but. Sorry to jump over you, you here. And you will get a chance to talk on this podcast at some point today. But as a kid, I had a scout camp of the weekend of the 1988 Littlewoods Cup final, which I could not get out of. So I was not going to see the game, but I was excited for the game. I knew the game was going on. I knew everything about the game. I was very, very up for this game. And my mum had faithfully promised me that she was going to record the game. Because in those <laughs> days, obviously, you, I think it might have even been Betamax still at this point, let alone VHS. But but it was a case of, and I'd watch it when I get home. Now, bearing in mind, my mum was capable of recording neighbours for me every single day when I was at school. I was perfectly confident she could record the uh, the Littlewoods Cup final. You can probably guess where this is going, Pete. Yeah, I can sort of guess the punchline, yeah. Yeah, mum forgot to record the, uh, the, the Littlewoods Cup final. I found out the result when I got home. The look on my mum's face when I said, oh, great, did you record it? And her face fell, told me that I wasn't going to get to see the actual game. And I don't think I saw the complete full game until at some point uh, in the YouTube era. So certainly well into my adult life, actually watching the whole match. I saw goals, I saw photos, and I think I've read so much about the game that I knew the narrative from, from start to finish, but I didn't get to see the game properly for many, many years. But I still support Luton Town to this day, and it wasn't quite the uh, the easy street that I, was, uh, that I was led to believe back in 1988. But... Let's get back to the actual game itself, Pete. Um, Nigel Winterburn playing right back for Arsenal. That was the uh, that was the first thing that surprised me when I was going through the little bit of the uh, the research again. That Nigel Winterburn, Winterburn, sorry, left footed, playing right back for Arsenal. Why? Why was that? Yeah, I don't know, and that that struck me as well. I don't remember him at, at, at right back, but then. Um... Yeah, my own sort of research in my faithful uh, Rothman's yearbook tells me he played quite a few games uh, or wearing number two mm. shirt, which assume uh, he uh, that's where he'd been playing. Because um, Lee Dixon hadn't joined, I don't think, until yeah. the year after. So um, Probably to do with this game, if I'm, if I'm being honest, Pete. I think Kingsley back made it clear that they needed a new, a new right back. 
and a new centre back as well. So, um, and and I think obviously with Kenny Sansom at the uh, on the left back, um, he wasn't going to be uh, be sort of moved. So yeah, that that, that seemed a bit uh, a bit odd. And of course he, um, you know, he's very obvious during the game. He's a left. I was going to say a left footer, but you know what I mean. He's not just a Catholic, but he's uh, he's um, he kicks with his left foot. So um, yeah, no, that that was a that was a strange one. Um, and there's a few things sort of that jumped out that seemed uh, not perhaps as you remember. And then, of course, there's Gus Caesar, who will get mentioned from time to time during this mm. podcast. He was in for the injured David O'Leary, who was at the tail end of his uh, of his Arsenal career, but would have played at Wembley in this in this one. Uh, had he not been injured. And, and Gus Caesar was yet another Arsenal youth team product in, in the team, alongside the likes of David Rocastle, Paul Davis, Michael Thomas, uh, as, uh, yeah. as Arsenal sort of uh, um, youth. They call them academy graduates now, obviously, but they were just they were just YTS boys who got, uh, got a first-team mm. contract in, the, in there by there. But I've forgotten what a brilliant footballer Paul Davis was. I think there's two yeah. underrated... Um, sort of English midfielders of the time that just didn't get enough love at the time, and that was, and they were both playing in this game. Paul Davis and Ricky Hill. Paul Davis never had his his Mickey yeah. Thomas moment where he where he wins the league with the last kick of the season. Paul Davis was a fine, yeah. fine player. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I remember him coming into the Arsenal team. I, I have this recollection of him being more sort of on the left side of. Of midfield, but but yeah, in this game, I mean, he's very much running it, and and the first half is um, is mainly really just him and Rowcastle just just directing things or trying to get things going for Arsenal. Everything went through them, but uh, yeah, he was one of those sort of midfielders are quite sort of um, languid in terms of it actually seemed relatively easy for him um, some of the, the work which is a measure I guess of a good player but um, yeah no, I think I thought he was a great player I actually saw him play in the um, in the Sky Sports Masters when he must have been in his mid to late 40s and he looked like he could still play and, and run a game in, uh, in in League 1 League 2 at that point he was in absolutely in mm. great shape so coming into this game, then there was a lot of talk about Luton Town's sort of men, sort of big game mentality, their their mental temperament. As we've mentioned already, they'd lost four one to second division Reading in this in the the famous Seamod Cup uh, final at Wembley. I think that must have been one of the many football tournaments that were created by the FA to to make people forget about European football, just give them more finals at Wembley. Everyone would be happy. So we managed to we managed to lose that one four yeah. one at uh, Wembley. Mickey Jilks absolutely destroying us uh, I seem to remember but we'd also lost three consecutive FA Cup FA Cup semi-finals as well including one this very season to to, to Wimbledon who went on to win the uh, the FA Cup mm. so there was a big question mark over whether Luton had the the mentality to win a, a big match yeah I, I think that's the case and I mean they'd always been um I mean when they first came up they were sort of uh, an unfashionable club if you like uh, a smallish sort of um, comments in, in a way you sort of looked on that oh this is quite the, the progression they're making is quite quite good um, and people weren't necessarily expecting very uh, very much um, so yes to have the sort of uh, run that they'd had this uh, this season was uh, was was quite amazing but you, yeah you you would look at that um, I mean Arsenal had sort of internationals um, and you'd say well big game mentality is all uh, all on them and and uh, looking at the game again. You got the impression, if you didn't know sort of what was going to happen, you got the impression that Arsenal turned up and felt that they were uh, going to, to to run the game, and um, and and Luton sort of picked the pocket really. They did indeed, and uh, but both teams came in hopelessly out of form. Really, I mean, Arsenal had only had two wins out of their previous nine games. I think Luton had one win in five, but that win had come the Tuesday night before the weekend cup final against, I think it was QPR. So they they, they had a little bit of a spike in their in their sort of uh, their in, in their recent form. But then Ray Harford, the the Luton manager who'd replaced David Pleat, um, he mixed it up completely. Uh, in terms of his team selection, because there'd been big doubts over the likes of Ricky Hill uh, and David Priest in terms of their fitness, and he he gambled on both. He, he picked both uh, picked both into into the midfield. But then also up right up until lunchtime, it was touch and go for the regular Luton Town keeper, the late great Les Seeley, uh, and it, he was eventually ruled out. He failed a fitness test at lunchtime, meaning that young twenty two year old Andy Dibble 
came in for only his sixth game of uh, what had been a very long season for Luton, bearing in mind they'd gone deep into all the cup competitions alongside their league campaign. So Andy Dibble comes in for just his sixth ca- uh, game of the season, and it wasn't a bad game for Dibs, really, come come the end of it. Yeah, no, I mean, he had a fantastic uh, game. And then, it, it, in some respects, it, you won't necessarily... Um, remember this I wouldn't expect but um, it reminded me um, of the 78 League Cup final Liverpool Nottingham Forest Shilton's Cup tie Chris Woods comes in young Chris Woods and has an absolutely fantastic game in the first uh, match at Wembley yeah. and and as, as, as a kid watching that I, I sort of held that as a sort of a guide to when they say you know and then we watched um, the 82 European Cup final you see sort of um um, when Jimmy Rimmer went off and, and Nigel Spink came on and again, you know, not played many games, has a fantastic sort of performance. So you're sort of looking at those, whereas uh, as, as now you know, perhaps that sort of diminished a little bit and you sort of think of a, a substitute goalkeeper or an inexperienced goalkeeper just saying, well, he's going to be under so much pressure, he's, uh, he's going to have no chance. Um, so, yeah, it was... Uh, I think also whether I picked it up from the commentary or, or something else that um, was it Darren McDonough was injured in training in the week or something. So um, they'd obviously had quite a, a, a bit of an upheaval um, coming into the game. Well, they, they did indeed. and uh, But then also Harford pulled out another surprise, which was to select young Northern Ireland winger Kingsley Black on the left wing for Luton, ahead of Mark Steen, who'd played quite a few games that season, Brian Steen's younger brother. Now, Mark Steen had uh, got told this the day before and walked out of the team hotel and spent the night kipping on his mum's sofa. He was that disappointed about it. It was a very small sofa. It might have even been an armchair. Mark Mark Steen was only five foot three. But... uh, um, he was he was that distraught about it, but he he must have made good with Ray Harford come the time of the kickoff because he he was eventually named on the on the bench. One other thing I'd learned in the um, in the pre match build up, uh, which was, and this game was being shown on ITV, and you had Elton Wellsby sort of doing all the uh, all the pre match sort of. Uh, stuff for, for, for the TV channel was that Andy Dibble had actually played in the FA Cup semi-final as well and okay. taken a little bit of a battering off the direct style of um of, uh, of of Wimbledon's game. Now I don't know if that's technically true. I've not I've not gone back and and watched the game. I might be doing Dibble a little bit of a disservice there. However, that's what they were saying in the in the commentary that to go from a, the last game he played being an FA Cup semi final defeat to then get thrown into a Wembley final as your next game, it's going to be it'll be interesting to see how this young goalkeeper copes. History tells us uh, how how that one sort of turned out. So, but was there, were there any other th- sort of things leading up to the game that that stood out for you, Pete? Yeah, I picked up um, something um, that because um, a similar sort of thing when you're looking at uh, I mentioned about Steve Williams and think well he was I thought he was still quite sort of important in terms of their midfield and he was an experienced player by then played internationals why wasn't he playing and. and um, yeah, just managed to find out that again, he heard sort of again like the day before or something or um, or a couple of days before uh, George Graham just said to him he wasn't playing and he just um, just walked out of the hotel and they never saw him again. He never turned up for the for the sort of, to be with the players for the game and uh, I don't think he ever played for the club again. So um, that was uh, quite a strange one. And it was sort of weird that um, as you say, yeah, that thing about Mark Steen and, and you had two people sort of throwing a bit of a strop. We always sort of think perhaps that's a, a newish thing with players, but um, they obviously had yeah, that back then as well. No, definitely, definitely. So, so we'll, we'll, go, we'll now head off to head off to Wembley Way and uh, and we'll, we'll actually walk our way through the 1988 Littlewoods Cup final. But before we do that, we're just going to have a, a little break to tell you about a couple of our other podcasts. Hey Jack the Producer here. If you're enjoying the podcast and you're also interested in more modern football, then you should check out another Ronnie Dog Media podcast called Total Football Analysis, hosted by Chris Darwin and Lee Scott. Total Football Analysis exists to provide you with a little more context and understanding of the game that dominates all of our lives. So Pete, for me, the, the iconic image of, of Wembley finals is when those, well, the, the old Wembley finals is when those two teams start walking out of the tunnel uh, which I think was located in one of the far corners, and start and start walking across the the turf to do the the pre match presentations. And you've got you've got Steve Foster walking out there for for Luton Town, a player coach at Luton, and he's got his headband on. And if there's one image, there's there's a few images I remember about Luton of that time, but in particular it was Steve Foster and his headband. He was a hell of a centre back. 
Yeah, and I think um, I mean, say so we'll go on to sort of talk about it in this game, but um, he was he was I, I would say magnificent. This certainly the first half, um, and and he you know he'd been around for, he was, for, for a while. He was absolutely colossus, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know how many England caps he got. I'm sure he played in one of the games in the 82 World Cup, unless that was Alvin Martin. But um, he was sort of one of, a bit, yeah, in a similar way to, to Alvin Martin. One of the slightly sort of newer type of, of defenders that he was great in the air, so typical sort of stopper, but he was also able to sort of, um, you know, it's a decent with his feet. Um, and, and, and he was a leader. You know, you imagine being a young player coming into that team. You just knew he'd be on your side and he'd look after you. And I think that was something that probably was ideal for uh, for young players coming into uh, to the Luton team. And, and yeah, you're right. You know, that iconic sort of walking across the, the well, effectively the sort of dog track to begin with. Um, and uh, and it sort of took such a, a long walk. And the thing you notice about the old Wem- Wembley um, was just there's so much sun. Uh, and it doesn't mean that sun doesn't sort of shine on on finals these days, but because of the Wembley as it is now, you just don't get that. Uh, it's not as as open. So, uh, and and that's possibly why, as kids, we look back and thought it was always shining on the FA Cup final or or you know one of the other finals. But I, I think, um, I mean, this wasn't uh, the, oh, there weren't that many. We hadn't watched um, live. League Cup finals for very long at that point. I mean, Liverpool won a lot of them in the early ages, and not many of those games were the first. Uh, you know, the final was 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 not often live. You had to wait till the next day to, to see it. I, I couldn't remember when it came in, but so all that um, um, alongside, you add to that the whole sort of build up. It becomes a, a, you know almost as important as uh, as the FA Cup, really. And of course, David Pleat, the former Luton manager, was on co-commentary that day as well. And he was uh, he was saying that uh, where, a lovely quote before the game kicked off. Wembley's been a great place for underdogs in the last few years, referring back. That was tongue in cheek to his own defeat at Wembley the, the season before with Coventry City. And also mentioned that it might be a little bit greedy for Arsenal yeah. to, to win it two years on the trot, which uh, which turned out to be uh, amazingly prophetic as, as well from there. But David Pleat, again... What a what an intelligent co-commentator. Now, we this is a running theme from my point of view, certainly, just about the lousy co-commentary that you get nowadays. David Pleat was one of the finest co-commentators, and I think he still does a little bit here and there now. But he was he was an absolute pleasure to listen to. Yeah, and he he he's I mean it's a sort of similar similar lines to uh, Jimmy Hill from last week's uh, podcast when he did the year before for the commentary thing. So you're watching sort of somebody who had quite involved with with the club and uh, trying to keep fairly sort of uh, unbiased but yeah I, I felt again he took the view of um, okay I'll answer the questions you ask me I'll give my view but I'm not going to be more important than the main commentator and I think at some point he even asked Brian Moore a question uh, who would you sort of pick now type thing and Brian Moore says why are you asking me mm. um, and so it was that sort of attitude of look I'm not interrupting you I'm not at, talking for too long um, but I'll, I'm just here if, if you need me which uh, yeah it's, it's, it's changed a lot since then. No, it's, it certainly has. It certainly has. So the game kicked off, and, and Arsenal definitely settled better. I think it. I think it's fair to say. And and Andy Dibble had to make a, an early simple save from from Alan Smith, but still a save that had to be made, and, and the ball stuck, which was must have been good to, to settle his his early nerves if there were any. You're probably going to notice, listeners, that Andy Dibble gets mentioned quite a lot over the remainder of this podcast. And I'm not going to apologise that for that for one single minute because this is um, one of the finest goalkeeping performances that I've, that I've ever seen. And I'm leading up to, folks, where I'm going to talk to you about how what happens later is the greatest penalty save that has ever been made. And I'm not saying that just because I'm a Luton Town fan. I'm saying that because I've actually got a very, very good sound logic to to go on with that as well. But Pete, Arsenal, Arsenal settled better, hadn't they? Yeah, I think so. But what was interesting um, was that, uh, I mean, there was both occasions where, uh, so both teams were sort of knocking the ball around quite comfortably first time um, passes. But what Arsenal didn't really seem to be able to do is, is they didn't seem to ever get going, I didn't think, for, for, for quite a while. Um, and although they had quite a lot of the ball, I, I would imagine if you're a defensive coach, you know Tony Pulis would probably say well, this is ideal because give them the ball, let them knock it around. They're not they're not hurting us. We've got a keeper who's who's yes, he's he's not the first choice perhaps. Um, they're not really challenging him. I think there was another 
Um, I think it was Thomas, if I wrote that down rightly, across into the box, which Dibble dealt with easily. Um, and so you didn't. they weren't getting Smith into the game. You hardly saw Groves. Um, I was also surprised Kevin Richardson wasn't in the game very much uh, early on. And, and, you know, having sort of watched him at, at Everton um, and, and remembering him being one of those sort of midfielders that was always involved in uh, in stuff that that which was where my sort of point about actually all they really had was Rocastle and Davis trying things from sort of midfield but not really able to sort of um play a telling pass and uh, Foster and Donaghy were just uh, just immense at the back and, and not letting anything through and and so that possibly helped with that point of, of Arsenal thinking you know, this is going to be quite easy, and then soon realising that uh, oh no, it uh, no, it isn't. And then Luton had the pace to sort of attack them on the uh, on the break once they soaked up the pressure. Yeah, and Luton's shape was was really interesting in the game because it was it was sort of sold to us as a four three three with uh, with Hill. Danny Wilson, who was excellent for the entire game, and David Priest sort of playing narrow as a three in midfield. But then you have sort of Kingsley Black playing as a as a classic left winger. But then Brian Steen, although starting sort of slightly to the right of the big brute that was Mick Harford through the middle, Steen was given pretty much free license to to roam wherever he was. And Brian Steen was such a good player, such a lovely touch, so elegant and quick, and and just kept the game very very simple he was finding really clever pockets of space um all, all over the place and that was kind of what i think what was messing up arsenal's classic 4-4-2 you had richardson who was having to tuck in at times uh, and particularly to to keep an eye on ricky hill who was playing although in a in a three he was certainly more right right hand side orientated because there were times that luton looked a little bit 4-4-2 in themselves when black would drop back in and hill would be more on the right side but then on the other side you had david rocastle who didn't really know whether he should be leaving Nigel Winterburn with Kingsley back one-on-one or whether he should be doubling up there and supporting, meaning that Rob Johnson, a left-back for Luton, didn't see too much of Rowcastle because at other times, Rowcastle was having to come central then to to pair up on David Priest and, and Danny Wilson in there. So, tactically, it was that for a 1980s game of English football. It was it was quite interesting and Luton's style was, was very much continental. And bearing in mind, Danny Wilson and David Priest can't have been much more than five foot six in, in sort of wet socks themselves it certainly wasn't your classic big sort of strong central midfield partnership no and i, I think you also that's a pretty good uh, explanation there because that that um the Steen sort of Harford thing you'd seen in English football for oh, good 10, 20 years really with, with a big sort of fairly sort of big centre forward and a slightly sort of shorter uh, man around them and, and, uh, and able to be sort of um, very mobile. He could finish. Uh, and I, I think from sort of Arsenal's defence Adams was clearly going to go with, with Harford because of the height, uh, but that left them a little bit exposed with, uh, with Caesar um, and you always got the impression that um, Adams was was sort of had one eye on on that as uh, as well. Whereas again, as I've just said, you know the the, the defensive pairing for, for Luton were very very certain of what they were doing, what their roles were, and um, and, and say that, that uh, you, you didn't really see the front two from Arsenal at all. And then the, the, the first 15 minutes is, is, is pretty even, but the, the first half chance came for Luton. Again, a, uh, a ball put into the, into the box and uh, Mick Harford got his first opportunity to really get a run and jump at the defenders and the goalkeeper. And he's got there just momentarily before John Lukic and, and his headers ended up on the roof of the net. But then again, and we're not talking much for, much later, in the 14th minute, Another free kick is aimed up at Harford, and there's a big mess in the Arsenal in the Arsenal box. Box. Steve Foster gets a little bit of a break and finds Brian Steen, and he just slots home beautifully his 17th goal of the season with a with a finish. David Pleat went as far as likening to the great Jimmy Greaves, which I, which I thought was an interesting comparison. But but nevertheless, it was absolutely calmness personified to to give Luton the lead. Yeah, I think um, I don't know whether he was expecting Steen to sort of larrup it a bit, but um, he yeah he calmly uh, placed that pass. Pass Lukic. I thought Foster's touch was was brilliant actually. I uh, I I enjoyed that. I mean, it was a as you say, Adam. Mm. I think Adam's got up first, but didn't really get a proper header on it. And um, and yeah, for for Foster to see that sort of chance. Um, again, it was one of those things they played together for, for a while. He obviously knew that was a, a channel that Steve was, Steen was going to be in. 
and uh, found him perfectly. And then Steen didn't need to uh, take a touch; he just finished it. So, uh, but that was quite a, you know, quite a, I suppose, a surprise or a shock. And it certainly sort of gave Arsenal a, a, a jolt. Um, but they didn't really sort of um, and and get get over that, as you've just said about with the the makeup of the two sides. It was all very well Arsenal knowing what the problem was, but they didn't seem to know how to get to get around it. No, indeed, indeed. Now, and the only real chance I was able to write down for Arsenal in in the first half, and it wasn't really a chance, was a, a clever free kick uh, on about the 20th minute mark that was just laid off to Nigel Winterburn. He's given it a bit of a slap from distance. And again, safe hands from Andy Dibble. Never really looked like it was troubling him. But again, very good technique to... To, to make the save look very easy. From from there, the game started to to get quite scrappy, and it and the the, the comment that Brian that Brian Moore, the commentator, makes sort of later in the the day that it's not really been a classic final, referring back to the first forty five minutes, I think was actually very fair. It, it wasn't much of a game for the remainder of the first half. No, and you certainly weren't expecting uh, much of a change after after that. But again, if you if you loot, and that's what you wanted, you didn't necessarily want to let Arsenal play. You didn't want to let them sort of dictate everything. So you get an early goal, you defend it, and uh, and disrupt all their play. Mm. And you think, well, actually, this could end up being as it is. You know, then you say, well, it, it's not particularly that exciting a, a game. But they hit them with a sucker punch. Um, and it, and again, looking back at. Smith and, and Groves didn't really have any clear-cut chances. As I say, that I've made notes of sort of a couple of – nearly everything is a sort of a cross-court by Dibble. Um, there was one one back pass, I think, from Foster that ended up being a little short. Uh, but but Dibble, again, dealt with that really calmly, and you sort of felt that he was enjoying being in the limelight a bit, which, um, which must have given the, the rest of the team a, a real sort of uh, boost. No, definitely, definitely. And then it, the, the the focus shifted in the 40th minute to uh, to another young man making a rare appearance, but he was playing for Arsenal. A young man by the name of Gus Caesar, who uh, had the sort of game that a whole chapter got dedicated to him in a, in a later book that went on to be incredibly famous by the Arsenal fan Nick Hornby, the, the book Fever Pitch. <laughs> Gus Caesar inexplicably, inexplicably picks up the ball from John Lukic, I think, looks up to float it to Kenny Sansom at left back and virtually puts it into about four rows back of Wembley. Now, Gus Caesar ends this game with his reputation absolutely in tatters. And I tried to watch this game back uh, yesterday with slightly more compassionate eyes just to see did Gus Caesar have that bad a game really now other than that pass a couple of little errors and then the error which we will come on to later in the game I actually think that Gus Caesar bearing in mind he was coming in for David O'Leary and he's still a kid at this point didn't play that badly certainly not badly enough to have his entire name tarnished for the rest of time yeah I think you're right and sometimes you could you could say well Actually, yes, but if you're going to have a uh, make a mistake and have a bad game, you don't really want it in a final because that's when people remember. If you if you're sort of on a on a Tuesday night at Portsmouth, um, then perhaps the, where there aren't any cameras, maybe no one's going to remember. But um, yeah, it, 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 I, I think probably because O'Leary was sort of to the end of his um, towards the end of his uh, career and and um, was. Adams was the sort of the pretender, if you like. You felt that, um, you know, in George Graham being such a, a defensive-minded manager, you felt that they needed a little bit more uh, certainty. But, um, yeah, just at the wrong time, really, or the right time, if you're Luton, uh, no doubt he goes down in legend for Luton Town, I think. But. Well, I mean, and Andy Dibble got officially the man of the match for Luton at the end of the game, but there were quite a few jokers that also suggested Gus Caesar should get to share the champagne, <laughs> which, I, which I think, again, I think is a, a little bit harsh. So it was 1-0 to Luton at, at half-time, and uh, the second half opened up, and then suddenly we realised that Kingsley Black was actually playing in this final. He'd, uh, he'd got a, a, a good reputation. Mick Harford had said before the game how much he liked it when Kingsley played because he just knew that he was going to get quality delivery into the box, the kind of thing that Mick Harford had used to thrive on and we saw that really early in the second half with a with a great run by Kingsley Black uh sort of turning turning uh, Nigel Winterburn inside and out Nigel probably thought he was playing at left back and uh, across that went into Harford which uh didn't go in and didn't even go out for a corner but it started to set the tone for for what was going to happen in the next five ten minutes yeah, I mean they were certainly the more dangerous in the uh, in the second half, and um, as you say, yes, a, sort of a young 
keep running at a defence that uh, that's thinking they need to be keep it tight and we need a goal sort of fairly early. Otherwise, this could be a tough second half. Um, that was a great sort of opportunity, and, and, and I don't know whether there'd been a change at. Um, at half time for, for for Luton, or they just decided to sort of bring the guy in more, or whether the change had been in Arsenal and they sort of pushed Winterburn on a bit more. I don't know, but or maybe Rowcastle perhaps. Um, so it gave Black some uh, some space. But um, yeah, and I think there was a um, header from Steen fairly soon after which Lukic saved, and um, they, they they did look as if they were going to get the the, the next goal, which um, which would probably would have finished uh, Arsenal off at that point. I think I think we have to give a bit more credit to John Lukic for the save that actually meant uh, the save he actually made. And um, the the, the move, it was seconds later. It was in the next phase of play from that that Kingsley Black run that Mick Harford finally got a chance to isolate Gus Caesar and bullied the life out of him to uh, to, to send Caesar sprawling and then and then went galloping down the uh, the line in in true Mick Harford fashion. But the cross that he put in came into Brian Steen. It was one of those headers where Steen was almost going backwards to make the header and any kind of connection was going to be good. But he got enough of the connection to sort of start sending the ball looping towards the top corner. And Lukic probably wasn't expecting the ball to go that particular way. So we had to make a, a really top quality, full-length tip-it-over-the-bar Wembley-type save. That, I don't know about you, Pete, but the, the goals at Wembley, all, I mean, maybe it's because I was a kid, but they always felt huge, like really, really, really big goals. So a save like that always felt like they were worth double. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. And I think the shape of them as well made uh, made that difference. And and. Yes, as, as a sort of young kid, you're looking at the because you only really saw Wembley um, at a cup final uh, game. Then, then it was big pitch. You know, the crowd was a long way away from the the edge, um, and those those uh, those crossbars and the, the goals looked big. And I, I mean, yes, it's that save, isn't it? That uh, that Luke is, that the the thing that got me with that save is it it, it that you. I can't remember the last time I saw a keeper make a save like that. And whether it's because the ball travels faster these days. So, you know, okay, once it's sort of going past him, he's beaten really. But whereas back, if we're looking at that goal again, the, the ball did seem to almost be sort of held up slightly. Um, and so he just got his hand to it. But um, yeah, it was um, it was one that when you watch the sort of replays again, you think he shouldn't really have got there, but he did. Um it was yeah, it was that save, yeah. So uh, it, it it but but again, you know, as you say, that that's that's that sort of point where the the momentum is is with the side that's already in front, and and you know, there was a genuinely a feeling of of well, actually, they could be bossing this for the yeah. uh, for the rest of the day, but. Indeed, indeed. Now, the great thing about that save, though, Pete, was the fact that it doesn't even rank in the top three or four saves for me in this match. And it was <laughs> and it was a world class save, but it doesn't it doesn't register. I'd forgotten about that save until until I went back and watched this game again more recently. Now, for me, there was a big turning point in this game, and that was when Mick Harford got crocked. And Mick Harford didn't often get crocked. And credit to Tony Adams, because I'm sure there was a lot going on with Adams and Harford that we will, we will not have seen and yeah. never will know during that game. But you can kind of guess because they were both big, strong, physical sort of players, Harford in particular. And Adams goes right through the back of Mick Harford uh, in a way that you were allowed to in those days. And he finally managed to, to get the guy on, on the deck. And Harford was not a man to go down lightly or, or very, very often. If he's down, he's hurt. And it's and it turned out that Harford uh, had turned his ankle, and uh, although both the physio and, and Mick initially thought that he he was going to be able to continue, um, he was unable to. So uh, so so he he yeah. was taken off, which was a big blow for Luton. But also the other change that was made that the non-existent Perry Groves and credit to Perry, he's absolutely brutal on himself in his autobiography about his performance at Wembley that day. Um, he comes off right. and, and Martin Hayes comes on, who is the oldest looking 22-year-old I've, I've seen in, in, <laughs> in decades. He must have had a very tough paper round or YTS contract right. at Arsenal. But Hayes had an absolutely immediate impact, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he did. And, and uh, you're just sort of, in a way, watching that thinking, well, why yeah. wasn't he on at the start? But um, and, and again, whether that's a slight, um, I would say he, he was just busy straight away, wasn't he? He had a, 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 a whether he beat Foster or I, I, I can't sort of quite remember, but I remember sort of a bit of a dribble, um, 
and then they sort of suddenly Arsenal seem to have their their tails up, um, and and for really the first time in the in the match, and then he just seemed to find space that either Groves couldn't see or just wasn't allowed or something, and so whether. Luton slightly sort of dropped their guard a bit because there there been a change. Whether they thought Groves was was more of a threat than Hayes, I don't know. But um, either way, it seemed to catch them off off guard. No, it definitely did. I mean, Hayes's first couple of touches was to, as you say, I think I think he kind of nutmegged Foster as Foster mm. went in for a sliding tackle, and that's the first time Steve Foster's been beaten by anything on this exactly. on, on this yeah. occasion. So, so that sort of that made you sit up and take notice. But in the same phase of play, the ball gets worked to the left, and the cross comes in, and, and Alan Smith puts in a header, and and Andy Dibble makes another really really good save from the top corner, just tipping it over the bar. Now it was given as off side in the end or the ball had gone out or one of the other I can't remember exactly which one but Dibble doesn't know that at this point as far as he's concerned he's got to make that save and again it's a crucial save by Andy Dibble because Luton is still 1-0 up at this point but you could as you say the the, the tide was turning you could just feel that Arsenal were going to nick one here soon Yeah and it was again one of those times that I would imagine if you what well, lots of teams talk about that now when they first come into the sort of Premiership that the the difference between having watched sort of second division or Championship football is is that the you only ever really need one chance and the Premiership Premiership side will, will will finish it and you sort of felt with Arsenal that they really only needed that one flick and and uh, and their, their switch was uh, was changed they were suddenly a different uh, team and you're right you know Foster now wasn't winning everything in the air they weren't quite as dominant mm. in the, the back loot and and now Smith was finding himself a little bit of uh, space but but again your sort of point about keepers making saves at important times that's one of them because it was not only a really good save but it was a really important time because you suddenly felt that Arsenal or as if Arsenal suddenly believed that actually we might be able to get back into this game but again good save as it was this one doesn't even register my top six from this match Pete because uh, although although it was a good save Arsenal then did get the the equalising goal now 25 minutes to go Brian Moore commented that this game hasn't been a classic yet. Luton was still 1-0 up. Yeah, Arsenal are knocking on the door a little bit more, but they haven't got through yet. 20 minutes to go, and this game just kicks off completely. Not, not in a violent way, but in a just everything started happening, and, and, in, and an entire cup final gets crammed into the last 20 minutes, as, as far as I'm concerned. So there's another nice little free kick routine for, for Arsenal where the ball just gets rolled rolled back to Paul Davis and he just, just loops a delightful left-footed ball into the box. There's, a, again, a bit of a mess in there and it breaks to, to Martin Hayes, who, having actually run down the line a couple of times and beaten Foster, hadn't created any end product yet. But then the ball falls to him in the box and, and he finishes so calmly to, to make it 1-1. Now, that's fine. That's that's okay. All right, 1-1. They've been knocking on the door. But then three minutes later, Alan Smith finds space and he finishes brilliantly. Alan Smith was a really underrated finisher, I, I think, Pete. And, but it was a really good goal. Yeah, it was. And, and, and I think David Pleat made the comment on commentary about how he felt perhaps the first touch had taken mm. him too wide. Um, but he does get a good strike on the, the ball. And it's probably... Um, I was trying to look whether it hit Dibble's legs or it hit his arms, but you can tell from Dibble's reaction that he really was 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 annoyed that he probably should have done done better. But you know, it's hit at such a, such a pace that uh, he would have done well to uh, to, to stop it. Um, but again, it was one of those. It's about the only shot that, that I yeah. can remember Smith having up to that point. Uh, I don't think say he didn't get any space. He didn't really. They didn't give him any chances. Not even sort of real, uh, really good sort of uh, headers too much. Um, and so, um, yeah, it, 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 suddenly now you're looking at, well, OK, there's Arsenal, of course, you know, done nothing all game, two chances, really, which uh, how typical uh, typical Arsenal, they'll probably go on and, uh, and, and win it. It was, again, a, fantastic to watch the momentum change. But, um, and, of course, t- Luton, by that point, had um, just brought on, yes, as you say, they took off Mick Harford, Mark Steen came uh, Came on, and um, and I'm able to come out with my one of my favourite um, lines. I've made this one up myself. That there were then two Steens on the pitch and two Harfords on the bench. So uh, <laughs> there you go. Very good, Pete. Very good. Uh, we should we should all pause for a moment there, just to, just to appreciate the uh, the one of your legendary puns there. <laughs> 
So, if you can add a groan into the edit, that would be yeah. brilliant. No, that's, uh, that, 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 that's, that's marvellous. Now, Mark, Mark Steen, it's obviously come onto the pitch and he's gone galloping down the wing with his, with his first sort of touch. And I think this, I think this move might have happened before, um, before Arsenal scored their two goals, but it was certainly an early indication that Steen was, was, was raring to go in this final. But his finish it, or his finish at the end in that moment was nothing on the, nowhere near the same level as the quality of his, of his big mm. brother. But now we had two whippets on the pitch at either end, Martin Hayes and, and, and Mark Steen. So the game was open. The Luton were looking tired now. They've got, they're carrying Ricky Hill and they're carrying David Priest in terms of lacking in match fitness. Um, They've had to take Mick Harford off, which definitely wouldn't have been part of the plan. Steen would have come on without doubt for, for either Hill or Priest. And then and then Ray Harford makes the change and brings on Ashley Grimes, normally a left back for, for David David mm. Priest in midfield. Now that's actually a change that goes on to have an impact uh, right in the uh, right at the end. But there's still so much more that happens before we even get to the injury type. So 76 minute Pete, and we get a properly world-class save by Andy Dibble. Now, for me, this was the <laughs> second best save in this match because it's it's absolutely incredible. He's going the wrong way initially. Smith gets his head on the ball and sends it back the way that the ball has come. As a kid, you were always taught to try and head the ball back the way it's come because it's, it's more difficult for the goalkeeper. Again, like you mentioned earlier with Lukic's save, the ball is behind Dibble. Now, the reason this save is better for me is because Dibble Dibble tips it onto the post. That makes a save look 10% better for me than, than tipping it wide straight away. You get added you get added drama if you're able to get it onto the woodwork. <laughs> okay. Well, extra sort of points. And then yeah, Martin okay. Hayes following up well, that- misses from hits the post from a from from a yard. Oh, yeah, I don't know. Um, from from a man who seemed as if he'd um, he'd he'd been um, he, he sort of wound up for the whole time he'd been on the bench, and, and they'd let him go. And he was he was seemed to be ahead of everyone else on the pitch in, in his head, um, making an immediate impact. I don't know what he was uh, was thinking there, but um, uh, yeah. And again, I presume that'll be something he'll he'll look back for years to come and think. If I'd stuck that away, I'd, I'd have a winner's medal. But uh, yeah. But then the ball goes out for a corner, and in the from that very same corner, Andy Dibble brings out another world class save from a yard out. Martin Hayes gets a chance to head it a goal, and Dibble out of nowhere again just tips it over the bar. It's it's absolutely brilliant. Now the reason for me, another reason why these two saves are so particularly good, is that Luton are on the ropes here. Arsenal are looking for their knockout yeah. blow absolutely looking for their knockout blow. If either of those two goes goes in, the game is done and dusted. Luton have got nothing left. The first save, and then followed up in the next moment by an equally good save, that gives any team just that moment of, hang on a minute, something's going on here. We, we might still be in this. Dibble is suddenly looking like Superman. He's, he's invincible. And all this is building up to what I mentioned earlier in the, uh, the podcast today about how the penalty save is the best penalty save ever. In, in my opinion, because there's so much more to this story than just Andy Dibble happened to make a penalty save at a crucial time in a Little World's Cup final. You've got to remember that this guy got called up at, in, at the last minute. The number one goalkeeper's out injured. You've got to remember that his last game was uh, was an FA Cup semi-final defeat where Luton probably should have won that game. We're not saying Andy Dibble was any way to blame for that defeat, but that's going to be playing in his mind. He's young. It's a Wembley Cup final and his team are on the ropes. All these bits of the narrative are building up to why this this is the, the finest penalty save that, that, that has ever seen. Now, his second save was in the 76th minute. By, by the 78th minute, David Rowcastle has taken one of the most interesting tumbles in a Wembley penalty area. I think we should say you should never speak ill of the dead. David Rowcastle was an absolutely wonderful player. Such a talented player. Until his knee got done, um, he, he could have been anything that he wanted. And it was such a shame to see a knee injury sort of really finish his career about four or five years before he gave up because he was such a a wonderful player. Ian Wright talks about him as if he was as good as Pele, and you, you, you can you can understand why when you're a kid and you sort of you see David Rowcastle and you grow up with him. But David, I'm sorry, that was a dive. That was an absolute dive. There was no contact. 
Yeah, no, I mean, I, wa- I even waited for the replay, and I know you don't get all the cameras back back then, but you're still struggling to see where, still see where the contact was. But it was given. It was given. And again, this is another opportunity for Arsenal to put this game to bed. And who steps up? Nigel Winterburn. <laughs> Nigel Winterburn. Now, you look in that Arsenal team, and you've got some leaders in there. And I'm not saying Nigel Winterburn isn't a leader. I think history tells us that he was quite a, um, a passionate character and an important character in Arsenal's fabric over the, over the next generation. But you look at that team and you don't think Nigel Winterburn's taking that penalty for, for anyone. Yet, he is. Now, what happens next is, was so understated in the commentary. If you imagine that penalty say being made in any cup final now with the commentary that you would get attached to that, it's two different things, isn't it? Yeah, it. it um, I, I was looking and looking at the uh, my trusty uh, Rothman's yearbook. Michael Thomas um, seemed to take the penalties for for Arsenal that season. He, he certainly scored a, a few. So um, seeing as he was on the pitch, that seemed uh, seemed odd why he didn't take it. But um, unless Winterburn decided, look, I'm doing it. But then you sort of thought that would have been a thing that perhaps Adams would have done. But um, yeah, no, it. Uh, and and I, I can't remember whether it was you I was talking to recently, but I, I heard. Some stuff, uh, whether it was during the World Cup, I can't remember about some stats of how many, how many, how it seems easier for keepers to save against a left-footed player than a right-footed player on a penalty. And and I think if you didn't understand that, looking at Winterburn's body shape, you can see why because there's only one way he can put that ball. The way he's addressed, he's run up to it. The way he's addressing the ball, he's only going to hit it in that corner. Um, and uh, I've seen a thing um, where somebody is online. There might be a Facebook page. Somebody actually asks Andy Dibble, did he did he sort of guess or had he done some research? I think he sort of candidly says, you know, I, I, I had a sort of an idea. He probably wasn't going to admit he didn't, but um, I think from there he could see from the way that ball was was going to go. But again, when you talk, we've gone on about momentum. Everything seemed to be with Arsenal. They've thrown everything at, uh, at Dibble. He'd saved them. Uh, oh, there's a penalty now. Well, you don't miss penalties do you 12 yards keeper can't move you know easy this will be 3-1 thank you very much and, and then you suddenly again see it looks like a tug of war he sees again the momentum switch and and yeah you, you're right Luton are now completely and utterly energized by their uh, their keeper who's um who's performing heroics at one end and um and so an arsenal it's almost as if it's a like a boxing match just all these punches have been raining down and nothing sticks and um, yeah, and then they they, uh, they they eased off. It was the the great thing about penalties in those days as well, Pete, was the fact that the goalkeeper had to stay still before before the ball was kicked. Now, Dibble Dibble honoured that obviously, but he yeah he either guessed that it was going that way, but it almost looked like he was able to make the choice to go that way because that was the way the ball was going. It looked to me like he hadn't made up his mind which way he was going. The kick was taken, and he instantly thought, "I can save that." And, and he's gone the right way. Because although it looks like an incredibly good save, it's more about the context for me that makes it a very, very good penalty save. It wasn't a great penalty. It wasn't right in the corner. It's, it's kind of hit Dibble on his palm more than his fingertips. And Dibble's not sort of right over by the post by the time he gets to the ball. So that tells you that the ball isn't nestling in the, in the side netting. It's not a great height for a penalty. It's a good height for a goalkeeper. It's more about the importance of that moment in that game with all the other saves that he's made leading up to that. That... Uh, that makes it so important. Now, from that moment, Luton, as you... I mean, how many times do a, does a team miss a crucial penalty and then it's conceded a goal within 90 seconds of missing that crucial penalty? And this is exactly what happens in, in this game. They've gone right up the other end. Gus Caesar has inexplicably fallen over in the Arsenal penalty area. I mean, you, you could all... But nowadays, like, Sergio Ramos would be looking up just telling the ref that somebody's fouled him. But but Caesar, I think, just wants to bury his head in the ground, understandably, at this point. Um, the ball falls to, to Kingsley Black. He pulls it back to, to Brian Steen, who takes two shots. Goalkeeper saves both. He then lays it into Danny Wilson, who is one yard out. And Wilson, who's been superb for this entire game, has got Luton level. And at that point, you've, you just don't know what's going to happen next. No, I know there was a very much a feeling of, of you catching your breath here. Um, and certainly sort of things seem to have happened so quickly that you can almost sort of 
forget some of the other bits and and uh, and, and but but also from a, a, a neutral's point of view you're enjoying the spectacle because yes it's well God, what have Arsenal got now um they must come uh, come back from here surely to uh, and you thought they were walking at a 2-1 and they've had so many chances to get the third and and haven't uh, and uh, plucky little Luton who won't let her down um, they've gone and equalised. So, uh, yeah, but, but it was a fantastic spectacle. And then you've got another Dibble save. You just think this guy this guy is not going to get beaten again this day. There's a 1v1 with Alan Smith. And Smith is clean through. And again, it's not, it's not that it's a bad finish. It's just a very, very, very good bit of goalkeeping. So that, that Luton equaliser is now consolidated nicely. And we're going into the last seven, six minutes of the game. And it really is just a case of it is anybody's, absolutely anybody's. And we have to wait till the last, almost literally the last kick of the game to, to get a winner in this in this 1988 Little Woods Cup final. And it was Luton's, as you might have guessed, from my general <laughs> happiness throughout the course of this, this podcast. Uh, so sub Ashley Grimes, normally a left-back, and not a particularly great left-back at that, if, uh, if uh, we're being a little bit harsh, but uh, he'd, uh, he'd been at Man United. I'm sure, he, I'm sure he must have figured in a Manchester United Cup final at some point along the way. Is that right? Um, yeah, I was trying to think that. I, I'm not sure, because he always seemed to be a bit of a fringe player, a bit like sort of David McCreary career he was for years but um and and always sort of a reserve that came in when players got injured so um, quickly he might have turned him 83 league cup final perhaps um can't think of whether he was against brighton in 84 so uh yeah i don't know but um as you say he um he was not necessary for, for being on the right and and, and again it was an odd sort of well. I mean, in fact, it was a great cross, but it just seemed odd to see him cross with his left foot from from that position. But not just cross with his left foot; he crossed with the outside of his left foot. Well, yeah, to, to, yeah. to, cur- to curl it it's all like out away from the goal, like a like a right footer would do normally. Um, it was it was it was almost like the perfect right footed cross, but in in mirror image, it was it was bizarre and it was it didn't really befit Ashley Grimes maybe I'm being harsh there I, I, I don't know but I don't remember Ashley Grimes having that great a technique but it was a wonderful ball in and then Brian Steen as Brian Steen just seemed to do relentlessly just calmly side-footed the ball in not caring for a moment that if he made just a decent contact on that ball he was going to win Luton Town's first ever trophy in their long history and the game's done the game is done now. There's a there's a photograph that I had on my wall as a kid then for for many many years, which was as the ball is the ball's in the back of the net. Brian Steen's wheeling away. Uh, Danny Wilson's joining him, and a couple of other Luton Town sort of players are legging because they know what's has happened. And then you've got John Lukic on his backside. You've got Tony Adams on the ground. You've got uh, Gus Caesar. Funnily enough, isn't in shot yet again. Uh, you've got uh, Nigel Winterburn sort of bent, stooped over, hands on hips. And I think you've got maybe Mickey Thomas is looking distraught at what just ha- had happened as well, all in this same shot. It was a great, great photograph. And that was it. The 1988 Lords Cup final was done and, and Luton Town had, had won their first ever final. Yeah, it was a, yeah, yes, and, and an immense finish. And, and then you sort of, you're all sitting back thinking, uh, oh, what have we just watched here? Because it, it uh, because it happens all at the end, you just have this sort of, um, feeling of, of euphoria as to that's been a fantastic game um, and a little bit like the 79 Cup Final Arsenal Man United which I think some people have called it the 5 minute Cup Final because it, but you had all that finish right at the end and you think oh that's a great game but actually when you look back a lot of it wasn't um, but it, it did from a sort of well I've mean, made all sorts of analogies whether it's sort of boxing or tug of war or something like that I can't think of many more but just that whole say momentum one side having to go the other side coming back and, and not giving up and, and just those last two touches you said about the it, it, decisions that players make in, in an instant I mean obviously Grimes was more comfortable with his left than his right so it made sense for him to play that ball um, and as you say yeah Steen not, not probably not even giving it a second thought it's what he's done in trainings what he's paid to do and he finishes it and it's it's probably one of those things that players look back at later on and, and actually if I thought more about that I may have been nervous but you, you don't because it's, it's part of your, your, your training but um, I think I've read somewhere that he he then asks the ref um, how, much, how much time left and the ref just blows his whistle and says that's it you know and so it really was the very last kick of the game and then and you now 
it, when, when you sort of get those moments in, in cup finals, you kind of think, well, this this could be the launch pad for something special. Luton Town have got a good team. Uh, they've got a very good team, in fact. They've got some very, very talented players. But a lot of those players were sort of reaching the, uh, not not quite the end of their careers yet, but certainly they were sort of moving into the the latter stages of it. When you look at the likes of uh, Les Seeley, who was, despite Andy Dibble's heroics and deserving man of the match, was still Luton's first choice goalkeeper. You've got Steve Foster and Mal Donaghy, both the other side of uh, 30. You've got Ricky Hill. Who's over thirty? You've got Brian Steen, who's over thirty. You've got Mick Harford, who's over. Uh, I think Mick might have been twenty eight, twenty nine, but was probably well, as we we knew uh, within the next couple of years was going to get a couple of other sort of big moves to uh, to top up the pension pot and and things. So nowadays, you'd hope that team would go on and and become a bit a bit more of a force. That wasn't going to be the case for for Luton Town. They uh, they unfortunately, from from my point of view personally, uh, got relegated in the last season of the first division and missed out on all the Premier League money that then that then was starting to be dished out. Sadly, and uh, uh, things were never the same for Luton. But what about Arsenal, Pete? Because this was the, this was uh, although it was a defeat and they'd won the the League Cup final the season before, it was still very much an important part in the George Graham journey. Yeah, I think it was. And as I said, sort of at the start, that um, possibly, although you wouldn't like to experience it perhaps in a cup final, the performance of, of Caesar probably uh, just jolted um, George Graham into, I need to do something with the defence here. And so uh, I think he brought um, Dixon in and certainly Steve Bold. Uh, and, and, you know, everything changed for Arsenal. Then they uh, they go on and uh, say, sort of nip and tuck with Liverpool for, for the next sort of two or three seasons with. Uh, Swapping the championship between the two two clubs, so they were then a, a, a really sort of big important team, and um, and it, it was it was sort of making of them in, in a way. But um, I mean, Luton made it back to the final the following year, didn't they? But they lost to uh, to Forest. So um, so that was that sort of strange thing where you had this uh, constant where the team won one year got back into the final the following year and lost, and then the team that beat them got to the final the following year and lost. Um, so, um, and then and then that happened again, didn't it? With uh, with Nottingham Forest getting there in ninety, and then Oldham beating yeah. them. So it, it it continued for a little while. Yeah, longer. it was uh, it was funny how those sequences go. But um, but yeah, so so it it, it it's a fun now. Interesting enough, Luton. Yes, as you say, they were one of the founder members of the Premier League, weren't they? One of two clubs that have never played in the Premier League, and yet they were both involved in the uh, discussions about holding. Can you for, can you remember who the other club was? Oh, now that is a very, very good question. Who? So the, the, this other team has not played in the Premier League, but we're in the original discussions That's around it. it. They went down the same year Luton did, and they've not, never been. Notts County. Yeah. County, Neil, Neil well Warnock. Well done, Notts County. There you go. And that team had Mark Draper, Steve Finnan, and Craig Short, I think, all of which that went on to have very, very good football careers. There you go. Eh? That's a bit, bit I didn't know, so there you go. No, but you're right. I mean, imagine that. Imagine that. Sort of have being part of the uh, of the sort of the breakaway, and then not getting to go to your own party. And uh, and and both both teams have obviously. I think Luton have suffered a little bit more than Notts County over the years. And I'm not saying that Notts County have not had a tough time. I mean, there was the whole Sven Goran Eriksson and uh, and Sol Campbell sort of moment. But at the end of the day, the Luton were docked points for for various reasons that gave them no chance of playing competitive football. For, for several years, really. But then equally, if you have certain directors running for certain football clubs, then sometimes you deserve certain punishments. So. Maybe. And, and I suppose in some respects, uh, you, going from your story right at the start, you were very close to being an Oxford United fan. And of course, you know, life could have been completely different for you uh, then. I guess there's mm. a, at least something with uh, Luton. have had one or two sort of moments since to uh, to applaud. You got to remember, Pete. My first season was the nineteen eighty seven eighty eight season, and it was only really the last eight weeks of it. And in that time, Luton have finished, I think, sixth, maybe fifth in the first division. We've uh, we've uh, got to Wembley twice, and we've won one of them, and we've got to the FA Cup semi final. I thought well, I was onto an absolute winner. Then we get to Wembley again the next year. I'm thinking this, I could get used to this. This is all right. Then there's a few players in Luton's history that, that come through and are absolutely stunning players. And we go, we could go on to 94 and John Hartson and, and that class of 94 that went to Wembley again but lost to Chelsea in the FA Cup semi-final. So it, it wasn't it, it wasn't all bad as a, as in the early days of, of Luton Town. 
Uh, and we're, 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 we're making our comeback. But anyway, we're not here to talk about modern day football. It was, uh, it was all about 1988 today. <clears throat> uh, to, to my late mother, it was perfectly worth waiting almost 20 years to actually get to watch it as well. So, so thank you, mum, for, for, for that part of my, of my childhood. I have, I have let it go, I, I promise you. Anyway, that brings us to the end of today's podcast. Pete, as ever, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing another old game uh, game with you. And I'm looking forward to seeing where we end up next week. Yeah, thank you. That was good. So, folks, this has been the Retro Match Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed our look back at the 1988 Lewis Cup final. We will be back next week with another classic match from the football past. In the meantime, there will be a written piece to accompany today's podcast on taleoftwohalves.uk, and that will be going out on Sunday. Please don't forget to subscribe to us on whichever platform you've been using to listen to this today so you don't miss the next Retro Match Podcast. And, of course, if you enjoyed this as much as the match itself, please do leave us a five-star rating and even a review if you feel so inclined to do so. Thank you very much. Pete and I will be back next week. Thanks for listening to a Ronnie Dog Media podcast. This was a retro match hosted by Chris Darwin and Pete Spencer. You can find Chris Darwin on Twitter at Chris Darwin RDM and you can find Pete on Twitter at IrishPete67 This episode was produced and edited by me Jack Critton and music is by the excellent Ryan Anderson